Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 112. I hope each and every one of you are having a great week out there. Uh, We're having just a fantastic week over here at the Drum Shuffle. Um, You know, we've had so many great guests here recently, and this episode is going to be no different at all. Um, this interview was recorded back, uh, I, I want to say, right at the very tip end of July. Uh, and we will be joined by the great Danny Gottlieb right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by the great, phenomenal Danny Gottlieb here in just a moment. Um, Again, we talked with Danny back, uh, it may have even been the very last day of July. I can't remember exactly, Uh, but we had him on the show and we, uh, you know, I had every intent intent and purpose of talking with him about Electric Blue, which is uh, the album that had just dropped at that time, uh, along with his, you know, longtime rhythm section partner, uh, the great bassist Mark Egan. Um, And we got on the phone and we had, uh, you know, an hour plus conversation about almost everything in the world. Danny has just done so many remarkable gigs Um, He has studied with some of the legends of drumming, and we got into all of that. Um, But I do want to encourage you now, if you haven't yet picked up a copy of Electric Blue by Mark Egan and Danny Gottlieb, go do that. Uh, That was the whole reason we got on the phone together. 
but I think you're going to get a ton of great information out of this. Uh, Danny is just one of the legends in the drumming business. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Danny Gottlieb. Hey, good morning, Danny. How are you, sir? Uh, hi, Jamie. Great. Thank you so much. Oh, no, no, no. Thank you for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate it. Um, so kind of the, the, the question that I've been asking all my guests for, it seems like the past, you know, six months, how, uh, how are you faring the COVID-19 pandemic? Are you using this time to recharge or, or what are you, how are you filling your hours, I guess? Well, good question. Um, you know, I, in addition to performing, I teach at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, which is odd because I live in Nashville and I commute back and forth. And pre-pandemic, you know, I was getting on a plane almost every week to go teach. And once COVID hit, um, you know, things, uh, and, but in, uh, that being said, most of my things that I do, I, I just teach applied lessons and I teach two classes online that were online before the pandemic hit. So I was just going back and forth doing uh, online lessons. And then when the uh, when COVID hit, I switched to completely online and then stayed in Nashville. Also, I was staying with my mom in Jacksonville and she's in an assisted living place and you can't go in there. So starting in March, as soon as they shut down her facility for guests, I drove back to Nashville and I haven't been on a plane or traveled since then, which, first of all, like for all of us, is so odd. I don't think there's been a month since 1975 that I haven't been on a plane. <laughs> so, <Right>. <laughs> it's so weird. So I continued, you know, I finished out the school semester. I gave all of uh, uh, the rest of the applied drum lessons uh, via Zoom and also just by FaceTime, depending on what the situation was. And then I had a summer course to teach, which was already scheduled to be online. I teach the history of jazz for non-music majors, which I've done ever since I started teaching at UNF. So I had a, a course to administrate. In fact, that's come winding down right now this week. So one of the things I did this summer was teach that. And I taught a few lessons to the students who also are all dealing with the, the virus and trying to figure out how to practice and is school going to go back in the fall and all that. And the biggest change, like for all of us, anybody that tours, Beth, my wife and I have been in Gary Sinise's Lieutenant Dan Band for 15 years, and we had a whole summer of gigs like everyone else canceled. We were actually going to play our 500th gig this summer. Uh, but because of the virus that all stopped where we live, um, there's a lot of exercise things that never shut down. We have clay tennis courts. So we play when the weather's nice, we play tennis every single day. We're in a hiking group where we social distance and we go on a five mile hike two times a week. So I've been exercising a lot. And, um, the other thing is, I don't know if you're aware, but I, 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 I worked on a labor of love with one of my greatest drummers and a, and a teacher and a hero, Harold Jones, who used to play with Count Basie and Sarah Vaughan and Tony, and then more recently with Tony Bennett. And the book was released uh, about a year and a half ago. And I'm actually working on two new books, one with Ayerto and one with Terry Gibbs analyzing the dream band playing of Mel Lewis. So I've been working on these books nonstop all summer and practicing, you know, we're practicing on the pad and, uh, that's what I've been doing with the time and kind of 
you know, watching the news and trying to figure out where we're going from here. Well, I think I speak for all, you know, aspiring drummers worldwide. All we need is Danny Gottlieb to be practicing more. That's all we need, man. So <laughs> all Danny needs is for Danny to be practicing. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it sounds like you're staying busy. You know, I mean, I've had some guests that are like, you know, all they can do is woodshed right now. You know, I mean, there's no touring, right. there's no gigs. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you've always... Uh, you know, as you said, you've been busy for the last 45 years, you know, so right. it, it sounds like business as usual, you know, writing books, all that good stuff. Um, you know, so I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, um, you're filling your hours. You're not just bored to death in, in Franklin, Tennessee. No, I, so. In fact, I'm, I'm finding I'm not having enough time to do what I want to do. It, it's crazy as that sounds. You know, without all the gigs, I mean, I'm still, you know, running around or not, you know, or just finding things to do. You're right. But, you know, it's good. I've always been, even though I'm, you know, somehow teaching, I'm really more of a student. I've always been a music student and I'm always trying to find stuff to to keep growing just for the sake of doing it, really. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you, you mentioned something there that I think we absolutely have to explore and that is the fact that you've been a student your whole life. And I would be terribly remiss if, you know, we, we didn't, you know, discuss some of the the legends of drumming that you studied with your entire life. You know, I mean, immediately Mel Lewis comes to mind, the great Joe Morello. Um, you worked with Gary Chester and helped him put together New Breed, which is kind of, you know, biblical to, to young drummers. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, your, your early years. I mean, you're, you're a New York native, but talk to me about, you know, studying with these, you know, just legendary names. Sure. Well, you know, it all, uh, you know, just the, uh, the path just sort of evolved by itself. I, I, I started not on the drums. I started playing the cello when I was in fourth grade. I was a string player and my mom, uh, who's still with us at 98, played violin her whole life. And when it was time to get an instrument in fourth grade, I went to go to violin. They didn't have any more. I got a cello. And, you know, the cello is just a beautiful instrument, except for the way that I played it. <laughs> <laughs> but I was a good faker. You know, I had a sense of, of, I don't know, some kind of sense of musicality. And I could get through the lessons without having to practice that much. But I knew the cello wasn't for me. And... There's a, uh, a friend of mine who I'm still friends with to this day named Dave Urig, U-H-R-I-G, who uh, we both grew up in New Jersey, and he was the drummer in the middle school band, uh, and he was the greatest guy, and he, he played really well and had this cute girlfriend, and, you know, whatever. He, he was a, a friend of mine, and I really admired the, the drumming, and he basically kind of took me under his wing and showed me how the drum set worked, and I just thought, this, I got to do this. This is what I want to do. And there was a summer music camp in New Jersey run by Mr. Geist, who unfortunately just passed away. We called him Mr. Geist until the day he, he passed away. He was a big mentor to all of us. He uh, had been a, a, a jazz saxophone player in the big band era and toured a lot with a couple of pretty famous bands and then ended up being a middle school and high school music teacher in New Jersey. And he used to play jazz at detention. So we all used to hang out after school, even if we didn't do anything bad. We just wanted to listen to music. <laughs> and, That's you know, fantastic. He, he was a big band guy. And I said, Can I really want to play the drums? And he said, OK, I'll let you play the drums. And they had a summer music 
camp, like a summer camp for, for middle school and high school kids. And I started playing the drums and I just, I could, I could just do it somehow. I could play. I could, I walked around just like everybody else with a practice pad and I was obsessed. I remember the day, and then I, uh, I asked my parents if I could take drum lessons and the day they said, yes, I was, it was like the greatest day of my life. <laughs> I could <laughs> right. take drum lessons. And there was a local teacher named Mr. Seabold and he used to come to the house and I took about maybe six months of lessons with him. And one day, this had to be when I was 15, so this is 1968, uh, there was a music store right a five-minute walk from my, uh, the apartment where I lived in New Jersey. It was called Dorn and Kirshner, and they mostly did uh, band instrument rentals, but they sold some things. And I remember I went in there to pick up a, a drum head, and there was a guy walking up the stairs, and the person who was in charge of the drum department, whose name was Joe McCarthy, said, that's Joe Morello. That's the great Joe Morello. And I went, who? Joe, Joe Morello? And I kind of had some vague understanding of what Dave Brubeck was, but there was a, L- a Ludwig drummer mag. I think that that's what it was called. Whatever the, the Ludwig magazine that they had, not the catalog. They used to put like an information magazine out. I think it was called the Ludwig drummer. But Joe was on the cover of it, and he said, see, he's on the cover of the magazine. And I was like, oh, man, that guy, he must be great. And I, then I realized that he played with Dave Brubeck, and I just said, Would he, could I study with him? And he said, sure, he teaches upstairs. Why don't you go up and ask him? So I nervously went up and knocked on his door, and I said, you know, I just started playing the drums, and I'm wondering if I could take a lesson. And he set up a time, what he called an evaluation lesson. Uh, which was basically you would go in there and he'd ask you to play a couple of rudiments and then he would play faster than you could play, but with one hand. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd play a paradiddle. Now work it up. Okay. And then he'd be playing with one hand and you'd go, oh, whoa, what, what? You know, you didn't like, what is that? So he, then he accepted me as a student and uh, I studied with him for about two years in high school. And Mr. Geist, the first thing when I wanted to play the drums, he said, Okay, here's two albums you got to get. The first one is Basie Straight Ahead, which had Harold Jones playing the drums on it. We had it on reel-to-reel tape. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know. and, uh, and the second one was uh, Art Pepper Plus Eleven with Mel playing the drums. And those were the first two jazz records that I picked up, or, or recordings. And again, it was on, they were on uh, reel-to-reel. Um, and I heard these recordings. And then we knew that Mel had was playing every Monday with Thad Jones uh, at the Village Vanguard. So Mr. Geist took a bunch of us students underage <laughs> to New York, <laughs> and we went into the Vanguard. I think the drinking age was 18, but somehow we got in there. And I saw Mel play, and I just freaked about Mel's playing. And I went up to Mel, and, I, and I'd been studying with Joe maybe for about six months at this point, and, or maybe a little, maybe it was a year into it. It had to be a little longer, maybe a year, year and a half. And um, I went up to Mel and I said, you know, I'm a student of Joe Morello's and I love your playing. Could, could I take a lesson with you? And he said, no, no, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. I don't have time for lessons. So I went back to my lesson with Joe Morello and I said, yeah, I saw Mel. You know, we went, a bunch of us went to the Vanguard. It was unbelievable. I, 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 I'm in love with his cymbal playing. And, but I asked him about if I could take a lesson because Joe used to encourage us to take lessons with different people. He loved that. And he, he, I said that Mel said, uh, you know, I'm just too busy. And he said, he's too busy. Call it, call the union in New York and get Mel's number, get him on the phone. <laughs> so, 
So I called the union and I got Mel's number and we're at Dorn and Kirshner. I'm at a lesson and I, I called Mel's house. Hello, Mel Lewis. Hi, my, my name is Danny Gottlieb. I studied with Joe Morello. I met you the other night. I'm actually with Joe. He's in the other room. He'd like to speak with you. He said, okay. So Joe comes in and he gets on the phone. He goes, Mel, what do you mean you're too busy? You can't teach him. This kid loves your symbols. You Come on, man. Give him a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> so he so he said okay and no, let's see I was 17 because I just had gotten my driver's license so I guess it was a year and a half or so after that so I, I had a car and Joe lived in Irvington New Jersey and Mel lived in Irvington New York he was living out of out of town up by the Tappanzee Bridge so I went up to Mel's house and um, I got to I mean a lesson was basically just going in and letting him just talk to me and play recordings for me he had a lot of stuff also on reel to reel, and um, I remember the first the first day I went in there, the first lesson he said, "Now, don't sit on the toilet seat too long because you can get hemorrhoids." And we're sitting on a drum seat, so you don't want to get hemorrhoids. <laughs> and make sure you clip your clip your toenails because they can get caught in your sock in the bass drum pedal. That, that was the first thing he said to me. I, I was like, "Okay." <laughs> I mean, come on, this is Mel Lewis, and and these yeah, these so are the great. These are the life and, lessons that he's instilling. I, that's fantastic. <laughs> and so, you know, I had Joe and then I was hanging out with Mel. And Mel, whenever he would do something, would invite me. To, you know, if he was playing at the Vanguard, he always put me on the guest list so I could go in. And uh, a couple of times he would be doing local gigs. I remember one time he did the jazz boat where the band played on a boat that would cruise around New York and he invited me to sit with him. I remember I sat next to, to Quentin Butter Jackson. We were you know, like eating a sandwich before the, the gig, which was so much fun. He invited me to um, uh, the, the recording Sweet for Pops, which was a tribute to Louis Armstrong. So he invited me to the recording session of Fat and Mel. He sat me in the corner and there was a tune on it called A Good Time Was Had By All, where they decided to overdub everybody banging on a cowbell so it sounded like a Mardi Gras. So I, uh, they had cowbells and woodblocks and everybody yelling and screaming, and he let me play a cowbell on the, on the overdub. Oh, so wow. that was really a thrill. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I, I had the two of them. Joe, uh, Joe's um, amazing teaching was was first of all i don't i don't do you know much about joe morello's teaching methods sure well did you know that he studied with george lawrence stone who wrote stick control absolutely oh okay so you're familiar with all that stuff well yes. there's a whole methodology that joe you know imparted to us basically which was mr stone's teaching method combined with joe's brilliant interpretation of it plus his own studies with billy gladstone and joe sefcheck and some of the other people so this was a, a very intense week-to-week -week, uh, teaching um, method where you just, I, I couldn't wait to practice to bring the stuff into Joe. So I had that going on, and he, he didn't, I mean, we talked about music. We Sometimes he'd give us a couple of exercises on the drums or ask us to play a tune or play a solo or something like that. But I was really focusing on the technique with Joe. And then I'd go hang out with Mel and, uh, you know, mostly just, spend time listening to music and, uh, and, and talk about some of the things that he had done. So it was really an amazing, now this is, I'm still in high school Yeah. and then, uh, trying to figure out what to do with my life. Do I want to be a professional? I, I still hadn't made the decision that I was going to be a drummer. I didn't really know. I, I wasn't sure. Even, even though I'm studying with these amazingly famous people, um, 
So I was looking for a school, and one of my best friends, Ricky Levine in high school's father had gone to University of Miami and gotten a music degree, and he said, you really should check out Miami. It's a great school. And I took a look, and it's the only school at the time, or was the only school at the time that offered a degree that was half business and half music. It was called music merchandising. And Miami was kind of ahead of its time with that. The only school in the country that had it. So I decided to go ahead and go to Miami and uh, major in music merchandising, which I then switched to be just the jazz major after I was there for it. I was sitting in the room doing accounting problems and I really wanted to play the drums. And I just said, <laughs> I'm switching to jazz. That's it. I got to give it, I got to give it every, everything I have. And that's what I did. So uh, yeah, that's how I got to Miami. <laughs> well, and you know, I so I, I would also be remiss if I didn't at least bring this up. And you know, we're we're probably going to jump around chronologically a little bit. But while you were at Miami, and, and by the way, you know, I mentioned this to you. We've had so many great Miami alums on this show. You know, the great oh, Rod, Rod great. Morgenstein. Uh, you know, Ed Toth, Brandon Buckley, um, you know, we've just had so many Miami grads, Mark Poise. Um, it, it's just such a great school. But while you were there, you made a critical alliance to your musical life um, with, you, you know, essentially your bass player for the, for the last 50 years, Mark Egan. Um, yep. Talk to me a little bit about that. And let's talk about the new release real quick. Okay. Well, you know, uh, I got to University of Miami in 71. Mark had already been there for a year. And um, one thing that was, uh, that I was, I, I kind of caught a lucky break going to Miami was Ludwig Drums used to have something called the Ludwig Drum Symposium every year, where it was like a summer get together for a week at a university. And Joe Morello predominantly used to do it, and Carmen, Carmine Apice used to do it, and uh, Andrew Surreal, and sometimes Alan Dawson, and different people who were Ludwig, uh, Ed Shaughnessy, Ludwig endorsers. And this particular year, my transition year between high school and college, which was summer of 71, uh, the, the Ludwig Drum Symposium was at the University of Miami, uh, oddly enough. So I got to go down in maybe June or whatever, whatever month it was prior to me starting my freshman year in September. So I got to go down to Miami, check out the school, be there for a week. And I happened to wander over uh, to the jazz department where Jerry Coker was teaching a summer uh, course for, a, a, for kids for a big band. It was Jerry Coker's last year at school. And I just walked into the room and I mentioned that I was going to be coming in as a freshman. And he said, well, why don't you sit in with the band? So I played with the kids. And he heard something in my playing, and, and I got into the top jazz band as a freshman, which was really kind of a cool thing. And in the band was Mark Egan playing the trumpet. Mark was <laughs> a trumpet player when we first met, and he was in the top band. And, and also, Bill Prince was in that band. Bill Prince, who uh, was working on his doctorate, and Bill Prince became a, a professor at the University of North Florida, where I now teach. He's a professor uh, emeritus. But Bill Prince played the trumpet solo on Channel One Sweep with Buddy Rich's big band. So that was kind of cool to play in a, a band as a freshman with Bill Prince playing, <laughs> playing the trumpet who played on Buddy's album. So yeah, was, in addition to the faculty, I was around a lot of students who had, uh, you know, were coming back to school, but that's where Mark and I became friends. And maybe Mark had come up with a, 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 his memory of what it was. But all I remember is he, Mark was mentioning that he was interested in the bass 
And I remember there was a gig that our, our friend of ours at school, Mark Colby, who's a great saxophone player who played with Maynard Ferguson and a billion, billion different people. Mark was pl- leading a gig and he needed a bass player. And I don't know if Mark volunteered or I knew that Mark also played the bass or something. There was something that Mark had just started playing the bass and we needed a bass player for this gig and Mark played bass and he was better than anybody we'd ever, I'd ever played with. It was unbelievable. <laughs> we hooked up the minute we started playing and I think he was playing acoustic at, I don't remember if it was acoustic or electric, but you know, he's mainly known as, a, as an electric player, but he also plays great acoustic bass, although he probably won't ever talk about it. But I just remember uh, Mark playing bass. It was a, a, a gig right near the University of Miami. And then we became inseparable. We played all the time. I mean, there were different factions of, of uh, players at school. But Mark and I had a, a certain ability to play at the university, which was just amazing. He, he's such a sensitive player, and we hear music in the same way. And, and it was a, a great way to, to start a, a friendship. And then when the Pat Metheny group started, also because of our alliance with Pat at the University of Miami, uh, Mark and I became the rhythm section in that band, and we've been playing ever since. So it's pushing 50 years that we've been performing. And there's a, this new release that you talked about is called Electric Blue. One of the things Mark and I used to do is we would play duo concerts. And, you know, it's not something for everybody because it's, a, it's bass and drums. But we used to play in New York and play in coffee houses in different places. And occasionally we get these really interesting gigs as a duo. I remember once we played Bumbershoot, which is a festival at Seattle near the Space Needle that they have. I don't know if they still have it, but I remember we opened for Laura Nero, who played solo piano, <laughs> which yeah. was great. Yeah. So we played duo and, and we just used to, Mark had this, uh, it was kind of the early stages of uh uh, machines that could uh, could play back what you played so you could play along with it. And he'd create these ambient, we called them waves, these ambient waves, and we would play along with it and play this atmospheric music with the bass and the drums and create textures along with grooves. And we used to have a lot of success with it, playing uh, as a duo. So here we are 50 years later, and we did some recording of us just playing duo and then added just uh, some extra tracks to fill it out a little bit, some extra percussion and mark on bass. And this is the first release of a, of a bunch of sessions that we had done, uh, which feature us playing just bass and drums, the textures that we play together. And we're really, I'm really proud of it. So to, to be clear, what moniker is the record being released under? Is it going to be an Elements release or is it being released under your all's, you know, surnames? No. Well, Mark has his own label. It's called Wavetone Recording, Wavetone Records. And this is going to be, it's, it's a duo release. Mark Egan, Danny Gottlieb, and it's called Electric Blue is the gotcha. name of it. O- okay. Okay. Perfect. And, and presumably that's available for our listeners to pick up wherever fine music can be found, correct? Yeah. Just came out. I just got copies. It's on vinyl and Mark pressed it up on, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's the heavier vinyl, 130 gram or 120 gram, whatever the, the, the extra good quality vinyl is. So he put it on vinyl and CD 
and uh, proud of it. And we got we got another one coming after this, so it's great. Okay, awesome. Well, you know, I, I, it, it goes without saying. I mean, you guys have have kind of been, you know, a, a rhythm section with, you know, you mentioned the Pat Matheny group. Um, you know, Gil Evans Orchestra, you know, for, for a couple of years, you know, prior to his passing. I mean, you guys have just been around the world together. Is there, I, I'm doing a bad job of setting this question up and I apologize for that, but you two guys together, is it just always kind of home base for you as a drummer to be with Mark? Oh, absolutely. In fact, you know, I'm probably doing a bad job of kind of telegraphing what this really is, too. You know, again, Mark Egan, great bass player who, you know, became a best friend so early in, in both of our d- developments, you know, at college. And we've kind of done things together and done things separately uh, to kind of not I don't want to say different career paths, but different experiences that every time we then get back together, it feels just like you said, home base, and we bring in the, the collective experiences that we've had with each other and away from each other, which just helps us grow. But it's just uh, for those, the, the musicians that are listening to this, the, the rhythm section players, when you have a, a relationship between bass and drums where you, you, you just don't even have to think about it. You hear time in the same way. You've had so many different experiences that something comes along and you kind of instinctively know how to react without even having to think about it. I mean, you mentioned the Gil Evans experience. I don't, the, the listeners, I don't know if you even realize who Gil Evans uh, was, but Gil Evans was the great piano player arranger who worked with Miles Davis in the late fifties on sketches of Spain and kind of blue. And uh, later in life, he had this big band that was one of the most amazing experiences of, of, of my and, and anybody who ever played in its life. It was, it's kind of like a free big band that had a little bit of structure, but it was like an, a night of anything goes. You've got a big band and Gil picks a tune and counts it off and we play the version that I, I was in. You mostly just play kind of a unison head that has a very loose arrangement. And you know how 99% of the big bands in the world, they say, you know, you figure out, okay, you're going to solo on this tune, and then this person's going to solo on that tune, and it's very structured. This was play the melody, and then whoever wants to solo, just stand up and start solo. <laughs> so it was just anything could happen. And the idea was you could change chords, you could change keys, you could change songs in the middle of the song. If, if Hiram Bullock was playing guitar, the late, great Hiram Bullock, who was also a friend of, at University of Miami, you know, we would go into Purple Haze probably five different times. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you never knew what anything could happen. And you could create some of the greatest music or it could be a complete dud. You never knew. And sometimes it would just grind to a halt. And Gil used to put, instead of letters on the charts, he would put numbers. So if the whole thing fell apart, he could hold up his two fingers and say, number two, one, two, three, and then you're back in the chart again. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I've I've read stories about, you know, like shows in, in Rio de Janeiro that would go on for just hours and hours, just like a party kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah. I, I can't imagine having that kind of freedom in a big band setting that has to be just immensely rewarding as a drummer. 
And, you know, conversely, you know, you guys did a, a show in Italy with Sting, of all things. I mean, that's yeah. pre- pretty amazing to run the gamut of the two different things, right? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it, well, it, you know, it really kind of goes back to your question about the home base. The thing with Mark and I, especially, I mean, the Matheny experience was, was one thing. Well, college was one thing, then the Matheny experience, then our other experiences doing recordings and different record dates for other people. But then the Gil Evans experience between Mark in the rhythm section and the late, great Lou Soloff kind of being the ringleader in the horn section they would start to do play little riffs like Mark. Sometimes we'd be playing a blues and we'd throw an extra bar in. We'd make it a 13 bar blues. So the thing would fall apart, but it was done on purpose. Or we'd throw, or we used to have a thing called movable one. We'd be playing ding, 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 ding. We'd start up again at a different place. So it made it, you know, kind of, uh, juxtapose and, and every, but everybody had to listen and react to it spontaneously at the moment. When you would change things up, if, if you didn't have big ears and listen to the, to the, to the change of the moment and react to it in a musical responsible way, it really would, it was a disaster. In fact, anytime that the, the nights didn't work, it was usually because people were, were somehow not focusing on the moment but that didn't happen that much with that band pretty much everybody was attuned to it but mark and i learned to react together so that as soon as he played one thing i knew just where it was going to go or i could react or i or i might just stop and wait till i figured out what was going on and then continue on but it was a really great experience in terms of uh of um experiencing where music could go so now whenever we play like you said it's home based because I kind of know where things could go and I'm open to it every time we play. So it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I don't want to give the wrong idea here. I mean, obviously, you know, you've got all the, the, the jazz credits in the world and fusion and, and all those things. But, you know, even though that's a big section cross section of your career, you're not just a pure, you know, jazz guy, you know, and I told you we would talk about this, but you spent several years in the Blues Brothers band and, you know, mm-hmm. th- there's a connection there to, to Bones Malone and, and Gill and, you know, it's it's all kind of cross pollinated. But, you know, the Blues Brothers is one of my all time favorite movies. I mean, I just loved everything about it. Oh, great. And, you know, I've caught performances, uh, you know, later on, you know, obviously, you know, after Belushi had passed. But, you know, it's you playing with another incredible bassist, Donald Duck Dunn. I mean, come on, man. I mean, what a dream gig for any drummer to play with him and Steve Cropper and, you know, just all those guys, Booker T. Um Talk to me a little bit about that, because it, it seems like it's a pretty far stretch from, you know, Pat Metheny uh, to the Blues Brothers. How did that gig come about? Well, you know, as you were talking, I was just kind of thinking to my just, how, you know, what was my connection to that? And, you know, I grew up in the 60s. And even though I had Mr. Geist and, you know, talking about Harold Jones and Basie Straight Ahead and uh, uh, Art Pepper Plus 11 with Mel it was a crossover time. I mean, at the University of Miami, Pat Metheny and I went and watched the Mahavishnu Orchestra play on the patio. 
at the school at the University of Miami. And it was a mind-blowing, life-changing, anything-goes moment where to hear Billy Cobham play with that power, um, you know, jazz and, and rock were, were really fusing, in a, if you were open to it, in a very non-purist kind of way. You know, we were at school, we were doing everything. And I grew up listening to just all kinds of music, like most people, of, you know, like Rod Morgenstein, also, of, you know, drummers of my generation and age. We just had, we were, had a lot of things all being kind of thrown at us at once. Jimi Hendrix, The Cream, The Who, uh, Pink Floyd, Miles Davis, you know, Bill Evans, Gil Evans, Baby Dodds. It was all kind of combined together. And one of the first records when I was just listening to vinyl in high school was the, I picked up a best of stacks recording. I remember playing to green onions and, uh, soul finger as a kid. I loved that music. I didn't even know who, you know, Donald Duck Dunn was or, or Cropper. I just knew that I loved that band and I, I played incessantly to that recording. So, uh, of course, I knew that music. I never dreaming I'm going to play with Booker T or any of them. It never, never even occurred to me, but I just liked it. And by playing with Gil Evans in New York, uh, the other thing was I was living in. I lived in New York for 20 years, and even though it wasn't the number one thing I did, I did do a fair amount of jingles and studio work. I wasn't the top call, but I used to get maybe four or five calls a month to do sessions. And sometimes I'd even get, you know, four or five a week, depending on if I was in town and if things kind of went my way. But a lot of those you had to be able to, okay, this is a, this is a commercial for, you know, the telephone company. We needed to sound like the police. So you needed <laughs> to be able to be flexible enough to know styles. And I just, because I liked music and I loved listening to a lot of different things, I was kind of attuned to being able to, to make certain music sound uh, the way that it needed for sessions, or at least as close as I could. And, um, again, so I was, I was kind of attuned to listen to a lot of different types of music, but I was playing in the Gil Evans orchestra and Tom Bones Malone was playing in that band in the Gil Evans orchestra. And of course we knew him from having been on Saturday night live. He had been the band leader for years. And I guess he was really involved, uh, in the making of the blues brothers band for Belushi and Ackroyd when they started to do it as a skit. I think Tom Malone did the arrangements and somehow they wanted a band with credibility and they ended up getting Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn. Um, and they went and they did that uh, briefcase full of blues and the albums that were successful. And then Belushi passed away. And then they did some sort of a, a big party, I think for Atlantic Re records where it was a reunion with just Ackroyd. Uh, and then they did a tour of Europe with Sam Moore as the leader as, as the main singer, Sam from Sam and Dave. And I think Anton Fig was the drummer who did that first tour. And then they came back and Anton was playing on the Letterman show and couldn't tour, but they wanted to keep the Blues Brothers band, which was the, uh, basically the, the band that backed Belushi and Ackroyd going as a, as a touring group because the movie, especially in Europe, was still very popular. So I think, <coughs> excuse me, Dan Ackroyd gave the band, uh, or at least the, the people that he had played with the okay to continue that. And they formed a partnership, which was Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, Alan Rubin, uh, on trumpet, Lou Marini on saxophone and Malone. And they allowed them to kind of tour as a blues brothers band touring band. And the person they picked 
uh, Sam Moore, I guess, didn't want to do it or couldn't do it anymore. So they got Eddie Floyd, who sang Knock on Wood, yeah. to be the, the main singer. And Tommy, uh, they call him Tommy Pipes McDonald, who's a great singer and also he's a drummer, uh, but a great front man to be the other blues brother. And they were going to go out on a tour and Anton couldn't do it. So Tom Malone suggested me from, from Gil Evans. Uh, because the Gil Evans band had some funk involved and some R&B. And, uh, I did a rehearsal with Duck and Steve uh, as the Blues Brothers, and it went well. And I said, great, you're in. You're, the, you're in the band. <laughs> wow. So I became, the, uh, there was a big tour coming up, and I ended up being uh, going out on the road. I think I was in it for maybe three or four years. <laughs> Excuse me. And then at one point, Duck wanted to make a change. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I'm, I'm spacing on the, it was Al Jackson's nephew who also played the drums and he wanted him to play drums in the Blues Brothers. And I was a little bit shocked that the gig was going to come to an end, but it was something that I accepted. And then a week later, he called me, Duck called and said, I, we've got a bunch of uh, uh, Booker T gigs coming up and uh, Anton had played a few of them but was wondering if I could cover them. And I said, absolutely. So I got to play maybe about 10 gigs with Booker T and the MGs with Duck, which was great. So I wasn't playing the Blues Brothers at that point, but I got to play with Booker T and the MGs, which was fantastic. And then the, the other drummer left, and I went back to the Blues Brothers for another three years. And that's kind of what my the time with that band was. Well, I, I just want to get in you know, a, a plug for some of the stuff that exists out there on the Internet. Um to all of my listeners, stop whatever you're doing, find a, an access portal to YouTube and look some of this <laughs> stuff up because I'm just telling you right now, I watched a version the other day, um, you know, of I think it was Knock on Wood. I mean, it was just a big medley of, of Memphis stuff. And I lived in Memphis for a little while. And oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, just such a great history of Stax Records and all those great Al Jackson Jr. grooves that he that he put out. But there's some video out there of you playing. And, you know, I, I just want to say this. You and and Duck Dunn were absolutely hauling the mail. I mean, I just, I, you know, my jaw dropped yeah. open. It was just so, so good. Um, you know, I saw a video with John Candy, Aykroyd, um, Jim Belushi, all on stage singing Sweet Home Chicago with you guys. Just, oh, that was probably Sky Dome. We, was it in a stadium? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was... Uh, uh, John Candy was a, uh, when he was alive was a part owner of the Toronto Argonauts Canadian football team. So we went and played a halftime show and then played a concert at the end of the thing, which was in the Sky Dome, which was great. You know, to play in a big stadium like that, that was really fun. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it's just amazing to see you guys. Just, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't have enough, you know, platitudes to throw out, but it was just oh. so good. It was deep it was pocket it was funk it was all of the above it was just amazing so so kudos to you but i i wanted to talk a little bit about that experience because it it's you know it's not that's not jazz obviously so um a very versatile player you are danny well i just love music and i i don't know i mean there, there are people that excel in in all of the different areas, you know, that, that, that have an identity. I, 
I feel like my identity probably is, is a lot of it is the sensitive symbol playing is kind of the personality that when I'm, when I'm playing music where you can actually tell who's at, who's playing the drums, it usually is, is things that are oriented like, like the recording with Mark that has a, a certain sensitivity and a lot of symbol colors. But when you get to play R and B and you're playing in a band, I, I, I used for all of that, I used Al Jackson as my, uh, as my reference point. Um, in fact, I don't know if you saw in one of the videos, there was that Back to Stacks thing, which was a four-hour concert, which took place in Medem. Uh, about two-thirds of it, I had to go back. You know, there was, we would play, it was four hours, and there was a break in between each one-hour segment. And by the third one, we were sweating, and really, it was so hot in this place. And I used to see videos of Al Jackson, or I saw videos uh, of Al Jackson playing where he would come out with a towel wrapped around his neck. That was one of the things, you know, he's playing with Otis Redding and he would come out, and, I guess, for the encore and he had a towel around his neck. So I came out on the third segment with a towel around my neck. No one noticed, but I was, that was me saying, Al, thank you. Nice. That's great. <laughs> but, you know, I, I can't say that I got a, a pocket exactly like Al Jackson, but that's what I was using as a reference. I'd play along with the recordings. I think Steve Jordan, when he did the first briefcase full of blues, I remember somebody told me that he came out of uh, the record when we used to have record stores in New York with, with like a, a bunch of, of Booker T recordings where he was really checking out all of that stuff when he first did the Blues Brothers. Uh, you know, you all just you, you go back to the source and listen to the references and and you do the best you can in terms of, you know, your personality combined with the original. And I was really just trying to to, I don't want to say sound like Al Jackson, but certainly play something that was in the style of, and that's what I did. And, and it was so much fun just to play those tunes. And they're su- they were, uh, they are, and were such great musicians. You listen to Duck Dunn play and it's, it sounds like what's on the record and you go, I'm playing with Duck Dunn. Oh man. And Cropper, what a rit- what a rhythm guitar player he is. Yeah. It's amazing. It was, it was a thrill. I was, it, for me, it was just fun to do it, and I just wanted to do a credible job, and that's what I was aiming for. But it was really a great experience. Blues Brothers were fun because they were always big. It was like big outdoor concerts in Europe, and they were big parties. I remember one time we played uh, in France when they won the World Cup. We were playing at a beach outdoors where they watched the, the soccer match on a big screen, and France won, and then we played a concert. And people went crazy. <laughs> and, and we did another one. It was in uh, Milan in front of the, I think it was in front of the Duomo in Milan. They said 75,000 people were there. Just big outdoor, you know, you're playing uh, She Caught the Katie and, uh, you know, all those Blues Brothers songs. It was really, really fun. And, 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 and the horn players, especially Alan Rubin, who was a top New York studio musician, one of the best trumpet players in history is in that band, and Lou Marini, who's one of the great jazz soloists of all time, of course. So it wasn't, you know, you were playing for the, for the moment, it was in, you know, an R&B gig based in Booker T, and that's what you went for, but it was a lot of fun. And the drummer playing now, Lee Finkelstein, is amazing. They've kept it going. He's done it for almost 20 years himself after I was in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you just, you pulled it off and it's, it's just, you know, it's such a part of my childhood, you know, I mean, we're on a mission from God and, and all that stuff, you know, and, and it's kind of the movie rolled into a, you know, a two hour concert, which is just, you know, it's great, you know? Um, and you know, I, I do want to mention, you know, uh, you talked about Lou Marini, you know, of course, uh, Everybody in the Blues Brothers got a nickname, you know, Matt Guitar Murphy, you know, 
uh, Blue right. Loom, you know, you were Danny G-Force Gottlieb, by golly. So <laughs> we, we got to get that in there, you know. So you're G-Force when you're in the Blues Brothers band, right? Right. So and Ackroyd came up with that, you know, he just, they were, they were, he just, you know, on the spur of the moment said, Danny got G force. Okay. <laughs> okay great. <laughs> so, but he, you know, it goes, it goes back to your original thing with Mark though, because so here I'm, I go out to play with the blues brothers. And then when I come back and Mark and I are in the studio or doing something that has anything with a groove, even close to it, you know, I've kind of upped my level just because I've been playing that for a while. Um, and, you know, I can add that to the, to the duo of Mark and I as a rhythm section. Because I come back and we end up playing for, on somebody's recording and it'd be a groove tune. I mean, the problem, the main, the, 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 the hardest thing for me is I, I naturally hear music way on the top side of the time. More like Tony Williams where it's got an edge. And a lot of the R&B stuff or groove music is really a little bit more laid back. So Mark and I have talked about that quite a, a bit. You know, it takes me, I, I've really got to concentrate to put it a little bit back in the pocket. And once I was out with the Blues Brothers, or even out with Gary Sinise, where we're doing you know similar kind of kind of tunes, uh, I've had a chance to really kind of work on that. So I can I can bring that when Mark and I go back and play, where it's, it needs a little bit more of a laid back feel. It, it comes a little bit easier if I've been doing it for a while. Yeah, well, and you know, I I think that's that's spot on. You know, I mean, I, I think whatever you're doing the most is what's going to kind of shine through in your playing. You know, and, and that whole pocket thing is it's really important. You know, and and you bring up a really good point. You know, R and B, you're way back in the pocket, um, whereas you know the straight ahead jazz stuff, you're a little bit more on top. And you know, I I think that's a, a very important distinction. Um, I, going back to the to the new release with Mark, you said it was you know a lot of sessions over you know a number of years. Do you guys have a large vault of stuff that's happened over the years that's still unheard? Um, not not too much. I mean, this was done. Most of the stuff on the new recording was actually done last year, but we've got more from those sessions to come out as as a new release. We did a lot of recording. Uh, in the last year or two where, um, you know, I, I don't know if we were really sure where it was going to go. Some of it was, it seemed like it started as rhythm section parts, but, uh, some of them were songs that we had played over the years. Like for example, there's a tune called Cabarete, which we used to play live with elements, but we also used to play it live as a duo. Um, and so I think there might, I don't know if there's much elements many uh, uh, recordings of elements that haven't been released. I mean, Mark released a bunch of live stuff years ago. I don't know what else is around, but for the duo, it's, it's more recent recording. In fact, I'm hoping we get a chance to get together and do even some more, but uh, there's, there's a whole album's worth of, of duo playing that didn't make it to this one. So there's some more stuff coming. Oh, that's good. That's great. Um, you know, and, and we'll look forward to that and, and, you know, please keep me posted so we can let everybody know when that stuff comes out. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, now I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on this. You know, you, you've spent all these years playing with Mark, who is, you know, like you said, a world-class bass player, just unbelievable. But you've also spent, you know, the last 15 years playing with a Hollywood actor on bass. <laughs> So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, now let me say this. Okay. 
Um, the first time I heard about Lu- the Lieutenant Dan band, I was like, okay, so Gary Sinise is playing bass in this group. Uh, I, you know, I wonder how that's going to be. He's actually a really good musician, you know, so tell me about getting involved with that and, and, you know, the last 15 years, really. Well, it's, you know, things, things come out of nowhere. It's, it's so bizarre. Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I just want to say well, before we even get into that one last thing with Mark, you know, while you were talking, I was just thinking to myself, you know, the, the thing about rhythm section playing, uh, I, I guess is, you know, you bring something, something as a team to the music that you play. And with Mark and I, it has a, a certain versatility. There's a, there's a groove that we have between the two of us, but there's a, also an interpretive ability that I think that we developed over, over time, both as a duo within ourselves, within the bands that we play, that we lead. And then also when we play for other people, I was reading about, um, I was, I was reading some interviews with Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne, you know, that were such a great rhythm section team in the sixties. And it got to the point where they would go to the studio and they would have to make something out of the music that was there. And I think Mark and I over the years had so many experiences where that was the case, even with Gil Evans, when a chart would come or a tune would come, we would try to find some way that we could make it personal and, and give it a direction and, and a, and a shape that made the music work. And I think as opposed to doing it individually, we were able to do it as a team, not just we played a nice groove together, we could interpret the music as a, as a, as a team. And I think that's one of the fortes of the two of us. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, sure. So, and then back to, and so then the, the situation with Gary, well, I'm married to a, a wonderful woman, Beth, who is a, uh, a great percussionist. We've been married now 21 years. Um, Beth also plays the drum set, but she excels at timpani and, and mallet playing. And for years she worked at Disney. Um, she went to Eastman and out after getting her master's, got a job um, at, at Disney World. She was also a drum corps person. She was she played snare drum in Spirit of Atlanta in 1980 when they won drums. So here's a, a girl playing the snare drum and they win drums. And she's a ridiculous rudiment player on top of being a great percussionist. <laughs> You know, be careful what you wish for. You know, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm never going to play I, me with my Joe Morello left hand stuff. I'm never going to play the snare drum like like she does. That that is something else. That that is that's it's it's drum core playing. So she's got a certain precision, and so it, it, you know, our, our marriage has been a lot of fun with percussion and drums between the, the the different approaches that we have and what we bring to the table. But she was working at Disney. We got married. I was living in New York. This is 1998. We met at a PASIC at a Percussive Arts Society convention. Awesome. <laughs> Jim Jim Catalano from Ludwig introduced us, and um, we ended up uh, you know marrying uh, a year or so later. And uh, Beth was living in Orlando. I decided to move from New York to Orlando, but still kept an apartment in New York, thinking that you know, I would just have it as a backup, or I would go back and forth to New York. And it turned out I didn't really even need to be there that much. But moved to Orlando, and Beth was still working at Disney and she was playing the Christmas show, which is called candlelight and candlelight is a show that's, uh, been at Epcot forever. I think Beth's done it since it opened. It's a, uh, I don't know, 60 piece orchestra and 250 kids singing in a choir, usually high school kids that come in as, or, or not usually, but it's always high school kids that come in as guests 
another 100 singers who are employees of the park who audition for a chorus, and then a group of 20 professional singers. So it's, I don't know, 500 people on the stage uh, playing Christmas music live, and there's a guest narrator. And they usually have uh, people from a variety of different uh, areas, entertainment or politics, as the guest narrator. And Gary Sinise was one of the guest narrators. And Gary did it a couple times, and you know, he was just you do it for three three days at a time. And one of the years after one of the shows, Gary came over to me and said, "Didn't you, aren't you Danny? Didn't you used to play with Pat Metheny?" And I said. Yeah, how do you even know who Pat Metheny is? You know, here's Gary from Forrest Gump. You know, I don't know. I said, well, I actually was a bass player and, and played some guitar, too, in high school. And um, I actually wrote, a, I, I produced a play where I used Pat and Lyle's music specifically in the play. In fact, they kind of copy, uh, did, did some sort of a copyright thing where anybody who was to perform the play in the style of what he had directed had to use Matheny's music and Lyle Mays' music. Nice. So he was very familiar with Pat and Lyle, and they'd even met and hung out at some point, and I think they might have even seen Gary's play. And then Gary had also produced an album that Michael Brecker played on, and and Gary said, you know, yeah, yeah, I play the bass, and I just started this Lieutenant Dan band. And, you know, and we all laughed with Lieutenant Dan Band. <laughs> great. How, how good could that be? But, you know, I didn't say that. I just, yeah, great. You know, Lieutenant Dan Band, good. Uh, great. So, you know, we laughed and kind of forgot about it. And this was in 03. And in, I, I don't remember if it was that, if, if he told us that or if it was 04. But shortly thereafter, we got a phone call, Beth and I. Um, from Gary and a, and a friend of his, Kimo Williams, who kind of was involved in the beginning of the band, saying that they had a, a gig in Orlando, and the drummer who was playing in the band from Chicago was predominantly Chicago-based musicians. Gary used to go... Gary was the uh, uh, founder of a very famous theater company called Steppenwolf in Chicago. Um, when he was in high school, he started this theater company with John Malkovich. It started in a basement of a church, just a bunch of kids that wanted to act and it's now become this giant two-block-long thing in Chicago where they've won Tony Awards. It's this big theater company. Um, but Gary, when he would go in to do plays, used to just jam with musicians just for fun. And that's where this Lieutenant Dan Band thing started. He, um, after, well, um, you, you want me to keep on with the story? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is, this is gold. Well, Gary, uh, as he tells it, um, when he did Forrest Gump, uh, it was something that was important to him because he had military in his family. And evidently, when he was growing up, uh, his the woman that he ended up marrying, Moira, who was also an actor in the Steppenwolf Company, had uh, two brothers, his Gary's brother-in-laws, and they uh, were Vietnam vets. And they really shook Gary up. You know, they came back from Vietnam and told him all the stories. And Gary was kind of a, a lost soul at that point. And uh, one of his brother-in-laws kind of just said, look, man, you got to get your life together. And, and it really kind of made a big impression on Gary. So when he got the role with uh, in Forrest Gump, he ended up wearing his brother-in-law's dog tags and, you know, uh, kind of dedicating almost the role to, to his brother-in-law. So after the movie came out, Gary was honored by the American Disabled Vets group, where they brought him in to give him an award. And as he writes in his book, Gary came out with a book a couple of years ago. He, 
it was such a, a crazy thing that he got honored by the, you know, the American disabled vets. I'm just an actor. No, no, no. You played an actor who came back. He was a, a disabled vet who became successful. We want to honor you for doing that. And it evidently just freaked him out so much that he just said, I've got to start volunteering. And he started volunteering to work for the American disabled vets. And then 9-11 happens and Gary wants to volunteer and he ends up going on some tours and he's shaking hands and he's seeing other bands perform. And he says, you know, I, I, I hate this shaking hands thing. I, I want to do something more. Maybe I could put the little group together and we could go and, and do a tour. So this is in 03. They went on their first USO tour uh, and it was called the Lieutenant Dan Band. And then 2004 was when Gary uh, approached us. That's what it was. And he asked, uh, the, evidently they, they, had a, they only had a couple little gigs here and there, but they had a, a convent, something they were going to play in the Orlando area. And Tom, who had been playing the drums, was a Chicago-based musician, and he was doing a lot of shows and couldn't travel much. And Gary asked Beth and I if we would want to play with the Lieutenant Dan Band for this gig in, in Orlando. And we said, sure. And then it ended up being, at that point, we were, he was doing two hour and a half sets. So it was three hours of cover music. And he didn't want us to use charts. So the keyboard player, Ben Lewis, had written out all the, all the tunes, 50 tunes. And there were, you know, some of them were old R&B tunes that I knew, but other ones were more pop tunes that had very atypical forms, you know, where they'd be two extra measures or the drums would drop out for four bars or it'd be something that you'd really have to learn. And I remember doing the Christmas show and with, with charts and headphones backstage trying to learn these tunes, freaking out about how much <laughs> music there was and how hard this was going to be. And we end up uh, playing, it was, I think it was at the... Uh, it's either the Hard Rock or the House of Blues in Orlando, and it's a, it was a life-changing event. First of all, the, Gary played great. I couldn't believe it. He had amazing intonation. He played in tune. He played in time and was sensitive. Different than, you know, it's not Mark. It's a different thing. It's not Jocko. It wasn't Jeff Berlin. It wasn't Victor Wooten. But it was a solid bass player who could play in time, who was musical. And, and it was great. And it was hard. And the other thing was, it was, you know, before the gig, Gary kind of gave us all a lecture and said, you know, this is going to be a very difficult one. You're going to see some of the most wounded people you've ever seen. You're going to see people with no noses and no faces and blown off stuff. And they just want you to talk to them and be with them. So just, you know, let's give them a good show. And Beth brought one of her best friends, uh, a girl named Sha a woman named Sharon, to come. And we sat at a table with a, a soldier who had just had both legs replaced. And before the end of the night, Sharon had him up on the stage playing a tambourine. It was, it was something else. It, first of all, it was so it was a hard gig to do, and it was so much better than I thought it was going to be. And uh, and it was such a life changing moment of what the power of playing music in a philanthropic way could be. Yeah. And as soon as uh, a few days later, Gary called and said, would you and Beth like to be in the band? And we said, yeah. So we ended up joining the band in 2004. And at that point there was only, um, I don't know, maybe five, six gigs booked, something like that. And if it made Gary was bankrolling it, he paid us something. And if it made any money at all, he would donate it to a charity, to a military charity. And then it started to evolve where there were more and more gigs. People started to see Gary as a celebrity. The band was really good. And people would leave and would recommend other people who were as good or better than they were. 
We ended up with five singers. Everybody had a different strength, really incredible intonation. All jazz, uh, the musicians were all with jazz backgrounds. Ben went to IU and studied with David Baker, the keyboard player, uh, and Ernie Denoff, guitar player, monster. Uh, just really uh, uh, great players in the band. And all of a sudden, we started to play bigger gigs like casinos, and it started to make some real money. And then, uh, let's see if I, I'll try to keep it as, as short as I can. Uh, the first quadruple amputee came back from, I think it was Iraq, the first person who survived but lost both arms and legs. And there was a group in New York that wanted to, do, to build a home for this soldier. And Gary said, let's donate the band. And we did, and we played a concert at, uh, I think, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and they raised a bunch of money, and they built a home for the soldier. And then a second quadruple amputee came back, and Gary started to partner with these groups and then found, unfortunately, that he really wanted to have more control of the money and, and didn't because they were using money for advertising and different things. And with Gary lending his name to other groups, he felt that he didn't really have control that he wanted. So in 2011, he started his own foundation and it's gone through the roof in terms of support. And the band went from about 50 gigs a year to about to 30 gigs a year, just because it was getting to be too much. I mean, for years when Gary was on CSI New York, we would play, uh, he would do, he would tape the, the TV show until, you know, like all, he'd finish Friday night at four in the morning, get on a plane, and then we'd play a concert Saturday night somewhere, and then he'd fly home Sunday, and then be back taping the show Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... It, it, was, it was crazy. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's God's work. I mean, it truly is, you know. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, uh, and look, I'm not, I'm not disparaging anyone, but a lot of times when it's an actor or some sort of, you know, Hollywood celebrity type that starts a band, it's typically some sort of vanity project. And, and sometimes the playing isn't so good. You know, let, let's face right. it, you know, um, that's why I don't attempt to act, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm better at music than acting. Um so I, but with Gary, all of you guys are world-class players and it really is good music. I mean, it's not just something thrown together and he's doing right. it for such a greater good. Um you know, it's just it's heartwarming to me. So thank you for for donating your talents that way to help our wounded veterans. It's it is. It's the. It's a thrill to kind of later in in a in a music career to come to to get lucky enough to have something like this, because first of all, I get to do it with my wife playing percussion, and we we really play well together. You know, we've had a a chance to to work. You know, fifteen years of of playing, and it's almost. Uh, I don't want to say it's exactly like Ayerto when I used to play with, with his band with percussion and drums, but Beth really approaches it kind of like a percussionist and a drummer. She's got a snare drum up there and a bunch of tom-toms, and we almost sound like two drummers at certain points. And so that's fun in the fact that we can kind of add, um, you know, and then when just like with Mark and I, when we play other things, when Beth and I play other things, the experience of having played with Gary, we can kind of work as a team there. So that's been fun. Plus to be on the road with your wife, we, we've been, it's, it's like we're, you know, we never need to go on vacation because we've got, we, we tour with the band and it's so much fun, you know, up, of course, pre pandemic, but it was just fun to share it with her. And, and also watching Gary. I mean, if you read, if anybody reads his book, it's kind of, you can see how he operates, which is he's just a person who, 
gets a vision and says, how can I get this done to do good with it? And, and it's fascinating to watch. I mean, it's not, the band is now one small part of this much bigger thing. He's got, uh, you know, this program that works for first responders and he's got these programs that work, um, uh, with all kinds of different people, with vets that have all kinds of different problems. He took over an event that we used to do called Snowball Express. We, we did it for about maybe seven or eight years in, uh, in the Fort Worth area, which is a thing where American Airlines was flying 1,000 to 1,500 kids who lost a parent in the war to have a bonding four-day weekend where they would get together as a group and play games and go to the rodeo and all kinds of stuff like that. Gary, we played it as a band, loved this event so much. He took it over and for the last two years has brought uh, 2,000 people to Disney World, all kids that lost a parent in the war and their remaining family members for a, a, a vacation at Disney World and a bonding session. And we play that event. It was It's something else. Unfortunately, this year with the pandemic, I just read that, of course, they've got to cancel it for this year. But uh, <laughs> there's so many pro programs that he's done that um, it's just so much fun to be a part of it. And, and, the, and, the, and the mission of the band in terms of what he uses it for has shifted a little bit. Whenever they would build a home for a soldier for, for years, we used to play concerts in that area which would get all of the, uh, the local businesses and people involved to know who their local hero is. That was always fun to do. I remember we did, there was a home they built for someone in Tampa and we played a concert right downtown Tampa. They had thousands and thousands of people all supporting the soldier. And, you know, we don't, we don't, haven't been doing that so much. We've been doing more bases and corporate gigs where uh, Home Depot, for example, we played their party or Publix where we'll, we'll do a corporate event and they'll donate a pile of money to Gary's foundation. So it's kind of a win-win for everybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's just fantastic work. And, and, you know, um, I, you know, again, if you hear of the Lieutenant Dan band in your area, go see them and it's, it's going to be, you're going to have a good time guaranteed, you know? So, yeah. And, and from a musical standpoint, you know, I always, it's the same thing. Even in the Matheny group, we used to do the song American garage and it had a hint of the who in it. You know, it was like, I felt like I was Keith Moon. And the same thing, when we play Bob O'Reilly, I am trying to to use the great, I'm trying to use the great studio and, and, and performing drummers who played on all these records or these recordings as, as a role model. You know, we play, you know, it's, it's 25 cover songs. Some of them are more contemporary that don't even have drummers on it that have machines and you try to sort of duplicate not necessarily the machine but kind of figure out the the most musical way to play it but when we play a stevie wonder tune i am trying to sound like like the track i'm trying to sound we play rosanna i'm trying to sound like jeff Percaro. and it's kind of a nice cross section if you love music just to play with people this good because they all play well everybody's got good time everybody plays in tune the singers sing really well they all interpret the music um Unfortunately, we just lost Charlie Daniels. We had one experience. We played the Kennedy Center maybe five years ago. We have a fiddle player in the band, uh, Dan Myers, who's amazing. And we usually played Devil Went Down to Georgia. And this particular night, Charlie Daniels was on the bill and sat in with us on, on Devil Went Down to Georgia. And Dan didn't even bring his violin because he figured, I'm not going to play. It's going to be Charlie. 
And Charlie said, come on, Dan, I want to play a duet with you. And Dan said, I didn't bring my fiddle. He said, I got an extra one. Grab it. <laughs> so there's, so we, they, the two of them came out there. We played Devil with Dan and, and Charlie Daniels. Um, we've played certain gigs. Sometimes Lee Greenwood will be there. We'll, we, we end the show every night, every time with God Bless the USA. So a couple of times Lee Greenwood came up and... Uh, and there's a couple of things in the arrangement that we didn't do, so it was interesting to have him show us, you know, how he interpreted it. It's it's a good musical experience. I I'm so proud of it. We were supposed to do our 500th concert this summer, and unfortunately, with the pandemic, we, it's all been postponed. But I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to get back. Uh, you know, like all of us, like every road musician is, uh, you know, struggling with that. But And then, you know, I mean, it's fun because I would tell Mark about my experiences and, and Mark even gave me a, a little practice thing to give to Gary so he could, you know, work on playing on the road. And it's, it's just, you know, I share all, it's like we do all that stuff and then I end up going back to home base with Mark whenever we can. So it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, I mean, your, your career is just so storied and, um, you know, you've played with everybody. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your your schedule to come on and talk with us. And, you know, as is our tradition here, um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. But if you would share a good piece of advice with all of us, you know, uh, over your, you know, 45, 50 year career at just the, the top, you know, uh, as an in-demand drummer, what have you learned that you would share with the rest of us that we can implement in our playing and in our day-to-day lives? Well, you know, it's, it's a question that I, or a, a comment, I, I'd like to take a little time and, and talk about it in a thoughtful way because as a, as a player and also a teacher, I really feel I have a responsibility to students or anybody who's interested in pursuing this as a career. And unfortunately, I, I, the way I, I feel is it's just, it, it, it is a different time than when I was coming up. And, and probably every drummer you talk to, especially older ones, would probably say something very similar. When I went to school, my whole purpose was... I just want to see where I can go with this. I just want to get better. And, you know, when you look at the eclectic, you know, the fact that I've I've played so many different types of gigs, I just wanted to play the drums in a good environment where it was professional and I could just play. I wasn't so concerned about, um, I mean, some, some people look at this in an artful way where they only want to do one thing. I just wanted to play the drums and get better. Uh, and one thing we didn't mention, my first gig out of college, I, I was on the road with Bobby Rydell for a year. I don't know if, you, if the listeners know, you know who that is, but Bobby was a famous rock, uh, teenage rock idol in the late 50s. And one way at University of Miami, we used to uh, work our way through school is we would play the, the shows on Miami Beach. And we would, uh, and I used to play a lot of, uh, you know, whenever the entertainers would come to town, uh, I would I worked the shows and I played Bobby's show and upon graduation Bobby had a trip to Australia and said I need a drummer to tour and be my musical director, so I did that for a year and Matheny thought I was crazy. <laughs> you're going you're going on the road. Come on, come up to Boston. We got to play jazz. What are you crazy? <laughs> Bobby Rydell. That, and I I just wanted to play. I wanted to travel. I wanted to play. And it seems like it might have been a weird choice. I ended up playing, you know, playing, getting to play jazz too, but I just wanted to get better. So when I graduated school, you know, I got the gig with Bobby from playing on the beach. But then when I moved into Manhattan, there were so many bands that 
I, I could aspire to play in for experience. I, especially, you know, in the jazz field, my heroes, Stan Getz had a band, and Jerry Mulligan had a band, and Diodato had a band, and David Sanborn had a band, and, um, you know, on and on and on. You know, Buddy Rich had a band who wanted to be a horn player. Thad Mel had a band. Woody Herman had a band. Basie had a band. You know, there were so many touring and performing opportunities, and I just wanted to get to New York and get better. And that's why I started taking lessons with everybody. And I was able to start working immediately. And, and I was always able to, to make more than my expenses were. And my goal was never to be, um, you know, when you think of success, I just wanted to keep playing and get better. That was the whole thing. I just want to have the freedom and the opportunity to see where I can go as a musician and enjoy the process. And that's really what I've been lucky enough to have done for 50 years. Of course, you know, when you have people like Mark Egan to get to, to play with as a rhythm section, it's, it's wonderful to share those experiences. But now when I look at, at, people who are in college who are going to be graduating and doing this as a career, I find it a very confusing time. Pre-pandemic, I found it a very confusing time. And uh, I, in terms of advice, there, there's, there's, uh, there's no sh- uh, substitute for hard work and practice and exploring and listening with an open mind. Uh, and now we're, we're in one way we're at a time where there's so much information available, especially with YouTube uh, and all of the audio that's available through streaming service. It's almost c- confusing that there's so much available, but there's so much to learn and so much uh, that you can find, which is a wonderful thing to be able to do. But then to be able to have a career with this, I find it just sort of a, a confusing time in terms of where you could go with this. And I think what I would use as my advice to up-and-coming musicians is to think this out. Kind of look at what, if, if you're thinking of going to, to, first of all, I would go to university and study for sure. Um, but in terms of where I would go with a career with this, I don't know if I would if I would only do music, I wonder if I would consider doing two careers at the same time. Some people only focus on music and they are, they find that they can be successful. I know more people graduating school that are, that have a, a, a more difficult time than I did when, when I was graduating because there were less opportunities. So I'm looking at a couple of the students who have graduated who have found careers in other things besides music, but they still play music without having to depend on it to make a living. And some of them are very, very successful where they continue to make CDs, they continue to grow, they continue to take lessons, they continue to study, but they have a second career. And it's a question that I don't really know the exact answer to, but I'd just like to throw it out there. When I was graduating school, if you didn't put everything you had into the music, you were accused of selling out. How can you do something else while you really want to focus on music? But today, it's just more difficult, and a lot of those playing opportunities don't exist. So just something to consider. I wonder if maybe if I was doing it again, if I wouldn't consider doing two careers at the same time, music and something else. So that's the only, I don't know if that constitutes the advice that you're looking for, but it's just something to think about. No, I mean, I think that's great. And, and you, you bring up so many good points that, that, you know, I could expound upon for probably another hour, but it's way harder to make a living 
in music today than it was even 20 years ago, you know, when I was coming up, right? Um, it's just, uh, there, there's, you know, everything is set up against the artist now in the business, I think, you know, I, and that's me viewing it through the artist lens. But, you know, you, you bring up really good points and, you know, I'll share a, a funny moment that I had with Rod Morgenstein, who is a good friend of yours. When he was on the show, he was talking about playing the exit in in Nashville in 1973. Yeah. He said, you know, I think they paid us 500 bucks. And I was like, wow, that was more in 73 than what they pay a band today. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, so, I, you know, I mean, I, so case in point it's a lot harder to be financially secure and successful in the music business. So I think your advice is spot on. And if you're teaching your students that you're doing them a great service to say, look, do music for the love of music. But if you want to get wealthy, this probably isn't going to be the best career path. It never has been, but it's even harder now, if that makes any sense. Yeah, you know, and it's something I hate to even bring up because it's such, it's, it's almost like I feel like it stabs me in the heart when I talk about it this way because I've been, myself, I've been such a, uh, I don't want to say a purist, but I've just, I've been so lucky that I didn't have to do anything else except play music. And, you know, I ended up getting a teaching position, which, uh, uh, you know, you can say is, is, you know, not purely just playing anymore, but, you know, I've been one of the lucky ones who's been able to just go from one thing to another and, can, and kind of, you know, continue a career path. But when I look at it, you know, I was single to well into my forties. I was on the road 250 days a year. When I um, got the job at the university of North Florida, which was Oh five. Um, I think that's when I was, yeah, 2005. I had been to Europe. I think I, it was 37 trips in the previous 36 months. So I had been to Europe once a month for three years. <laughs> wow. It's insane. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I could keep any kind of relationship going. I don't know how I kept anything going, but somehow there was enough to do and I was able to, I was able to make it work. I just don't think you could, I, I don't know if I would advise that as a career path, but on the other hand, music is, so, it's, you know, you listen to the great artists, you listen to Louis Armstrong and you go, if somebody played like that, I would, how could you not be successful today? But it's a different it's a different time, a different approach. And just looking at it from a pure career standpoint, you've got many, many more people coming out of universities and fewer places to play. So I as an alternative, I've just been seeing a couple of my students who've gone into, for example, the business world working, you know, for a, a brokerage company who have enough, uh, can make a steady income. And, and, and I thought, okay, then that's going to be the end of music. And it's been the exact opposite. They've been able to play music and study and take lessons and do recordings without having to have the pressure of making a living playing music, but they kept their eye on the musical target, just doing it in a different way and taking longer to do it. Yeah. In other words, um, but again, I, I, the odds for me in 1975 graduating the University of Miami, because there were so many places to play, the odds were in my favor that I would find something. I'll get, you know, I'll get to, I'll, I'll get to play with Stan Getz. I'll get to play with Astro Gilberto. I'll get to play with Jerry Mulligan. I'll get to play with blah, blah, blah. There were so many jazz people not knowing, you know, that Blues Brothers and things like that were going to, and Booker T were going to come my way. But there was also a recording scene in New York 
there still is some in, in uh, you know, pre-pandemic in, you know, L.A., Nashville, and New York, but it's very hard. I mean, people do make a living here, again, pre-pandemic. In Nashville, there is, is a recording scene, but it's much more competitive. It's harder to break in, and it's a lot of pressure to go through, especially if you're 50000 to $100,000 in debt coming out of the university. Um, and, and then also you think about the teaching gigs. I was so lucky to get this job at the University of North Florida. We had a, uh, and, and this is in the classical department, we just had a, a percussion teacher that was hired a few years ago. They had a, a hundred people apply for the position. I think 80 of them had doctorates. They threw 20 out. If you didn't have a doctorate, you didn't even get considered for it. And out of 80 people applied, they picked three finalists and one person got it. Those are rough odds, even for teaching, for playing. You know, it's nice when you have, I don't know, I'm just thinking that it's nice if you have some sort of a backup. You know, the other thing is I have two stepsons who both got master's degrees in percussion. And they have had anything but an easy time dealing with the business. Again, it's not drum set, it's percussion, which is really, really difficult. Yeah. But I just see the trials and tribulations, especially if you're trying to enter the workforce with a music degree and you're trying to get another job in another field to, to make ends meet and you have no qualifications whatsoever and all you can find is an entry-level job at Publix or McDonald's. It's really tough. So I just wonder if I, would, if I were doing it now, if I would rethink it and try to do two things. That, that's, it. that's advice you know, from, from a practical standpoint. And just to finish up with your question about, you know, musical advice, I think it's important to work on the study of the masters in jazz and contemporary music. I think take a, you know, start with baby Dodds, go through all the jazz drummers, start with uh, little Richard and, and Elvis and work your way through the Beatles to contemporary music. Listen to all, I, I went online to try to do this for my students. And, you know, I, I found, I think, 100 recordings Hal Blaine played on. And almost every one of them was on YouTube. Yeah. So I copied the URLs. They're all there to be listened to. Um, I did the, the book on Harold Jones. It's 76 Count Basie uh, recordings that he played on. It's not every note he played, but it's within reason. It's all of that swing music. All you have to do is listen to those recordings and play along and be able to study it. The Gary Chester stuff is, is fantastic. The New Breed is a great book for coordination. Um, the Syncopation book is great for reading and exercises to play. All of the, Joe Morello's two books, Master Studies 1 and 2, and uh, Stick Control and Accents and Rebounds, to me, is all you really need for technique. Um, and so I would, you know, compartmentalize it, work on technique, work on coordination, work on studying the masters, work on the music that you want to play and continue to grow and study with the best teacher you can find and watch everything that's on the internet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's all you have to do. Well, I, I'll get busy this afternoon. How's that sound? <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know, it, it's funny with college, you know, I wrote out everything I want the kids to work on and it's four hours of practice a day. They're, you can't, can't even do an hour a day. Not when you're in college, forget it. Yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, and, and in a way the pandemic as you know, as rough as time as it is, it, it, like you said in the very beginning, this is a, good time. Not that I'm spending every minute on that, but uh, it's a good time to get things done. And I think the remote teaching for the fall could be a chance for everybody to get things together that they haven't had a chance to work on. When you're running from one class to another, you know, there's barely time to catch your breath. And depending on how much work you have to do, if you, if you are a, you know, a high school student or a, or a college level student, you're going to have a lot of time at home. This is a great time to, to practice and, and work on things that you haven't been able to do. So I wish everybody the best. 
Yeah, well, we we appreciate it. And, and Danny, again, I can't thank you enough for doing this. We've got to have you back for a part two, uh, you know, oh. s- sometime soon, because there's so much that we didn't talk about. You know, unfortunately, you know, it's probably easier just to talk about the things you haven't done in your career. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I didn't play with the Beatles. OK, well, we, yeah. we can cross that one off. OK, but it, seriously, I mean, you've just got so much real world knowledge and experience and and your spirit is to share that with others and to teach and to and to mentor so we appreciate it but we've got to have you back so um oh. you know we'll, we'll work on that any any time jamie thank you so much thank you listeners and uh, good luck with your music and again the recording we're we're promoting it's called electric blue it's mark egan and i uh on his wave tone label it's just duo drums and bass and it's the way that we play together and i hope you'll enjoy it Absolutely. Everybody pick up a copy. Danny, thanks so much. Have a great day, man. Jamie, all the best. Take care. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 112 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Question, can you tell how much I love doing this show? I mean, when else in my life am I going to get to have a wide-ranging conversation of that magnitude, that depth with somebody like Danny Gottlieb. Thank you guys so much for listening to this show. It gives me the opportunity to do these interviews. I can't thank you enough. Uh, As always, I will ask you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in to the Drum Shuffle podcast. Leave us a rating, a review. Uh, It helps us continue to grow. Uh, And and I'm very pleased to report that we are continuing to grow, you know, almost three years in and we're getting new listeners every week. And and that's because of you guys sharing a link with friends and telling others about the show. We really do appreciate it. As always, we answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle podcast. Uh, The email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Again, if you haven't picked up a copy of Electric Blue by Mark Egan and Danny Gottlieb, go do so. It's fantastic. Um, I think it gives a really good look at how rhythm sections work together. Uh, It's a duo album of drums and bass. Uh, and it's really uh, intriguing to me as a drummer. Danny's playing is just phenomenal, along with Mark. So make sure you pick up a copy of that record. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.